The True Ambition Podcast with John Zink is brought to you by IT Avalon. IT Avalon, IT staffing and professional services done right. Visit our sponsor at itavalon.com. Now, welcome to True Ambition. Everybody, welcome to the True Ambition Podcast. My name is John Zink, and uh, I'm honored today to be joined by Mr. Blake Pelletier. Appreciate you being here today over Zoom. Thanks. Nice to have me. So uh, Blake is currently uh, CIO and uh, CISO at the Police Credit Union of California, um, born in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So obviously he's a Vikings fan. <laughs> not really. <laughs> <laughs> I know he's not. He's a Packers fan, damn it. And uh, lives, uh, splits his time between Red Bluff, California and Danville, California. And uh, he is, uh, his spouse is uh, Terry and uh, four kids, uh, Courtney, Casey, Amanda, and Alex. And I know them all and they're all good kids. Um, now you and I met through our wives, correct? You know, if I, I think if I go back long enough, I think actually Carissa, my wife met you first was selling yeah. to you. Correct. And then she got introduced to Terry and then they found a common love for gambling, uh, by playing <laughs> a game named Skippo. Correct. And, uh, so if anybody doesn't know what Skippo is, it's this game that's kind of like Uno that they play against each other, and they 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 have an ongoing scorekeeping system that's in a like a leather bound book. Yes, that's gone on for years. As far as I know, they're the only two people in the world to play Skippo for money. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. There was a couple times where. Uh, uh, Lucky for me, I'm sober today, but back in the day when I drank, I think I had a bottle of Jägermeister and uh, we were sitting outside and it was hilarious because they were both smoking cigarettes and playing Skippo and drinking their wine. I had a bottle of Jägermeister. I think I just drank myself into a stupor because it's the most boring game I've ever seen in my life. Oh, no, I agree. I'd rather watch paint dry. <laughs> Yeah, I, I actually think that I tried to play one time and uh, they're like, uh, can you, they wanted me to go faster. I wasn't fast enough for them. So they just wanted me out of there. No, I, I learned that lesson early on. <laughs> so uh, we talked about before you're a Packer fan. I am. My you, family's had season tickets in Lambeau Field since the mid 40s. How many times have you been to Lambeau? I've only been once. Wow. Yeah, so I'm hoping to go again next season. But, yeah, I've only been there once. And coincidentally, it was a Niner game. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Packers are doing pretty good this year, right? They are. They are. They're fun to watch. Yeah. Well, uh, my Vikings aren't uh, doing worth a shit. So, um, and they, they sort of be, they're sort of up and down, you know. At times, they look really, really good. And at times, they look like they forgot how to play. Yeah, they, they, they give me hope every once in a while and then let me down the very next breath. <laughs> so um, you're also a Golden Gophers fan? Yeah, I was actually born at the University of Minnesota Hospital. Oh, wow. And then 
Oklahoma Sooners. Yeah, that's because my wife is is she grew up in in Norman, so um, and she went to OU. So yeah, I so I adopted them as a college team, and believe me, they take college football in Oklahoma a heck of a lot different than we did in California. I've actually I've actually seen her watching one of those games, and uh, it makes makes me look like a not a not a fan because she's so crazy about it. Yes, and if they lose, I have to leave her alone for about a week and a half because, <laughs> because she pouts incredibly. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think that uh, the background there before you, uh, just to let people know, he's actually not flying through the air right now. That was probably taken out of taken out of one of your planes. It is. It was taken out of the last plane I owned about two years ago, leaving Bose, Montana, coming back to the Bay Area. So now uh, I've actually flown with Blake before, or I've been in the plane that Blake was flying <laughs> before. And uh, uh, was that the Cirrus plane or was that a different yeah. one? The three that I've owned are all Cirrus. So you flew with me in the first one I owned, and, and I've owned two since then. Um, but um, yeah, they're a terrific airplane. I really enjoyed flying them. But um, I, I think I mentioned to you at your wife's birthday party, I'm getting back into flying. And uh, this spring, I'll be getting my multi-engine rating to fly multi-engine. That'd be great. I know you love it. I do. You know, so um, one of the things that I always remember that you told me, we were taking off somewhere and you said, uh, all right, start counting because it, it takes just about every aircraft about 30 seconds uh, to take off. Doesn't matter how big, how small, whatever it is. It is. It's a, it's a strange phenomenon. And I'll be, I'll be in a, uh, it doesn't matter where I'm at. I'll be on an airplane and I'll start counting as soon as they hit the engines. And it's always right around 30 seconds. Yeah. I just, it's, um, I don't know exact, I don't know the, the physics of why, but that just seems to be the case. So that Cirrus plane, uh, I remember when they were making that, I was living in Minneapolis when uh, Cirrus was coming on the scene. Right, and, they were out uh, at Duluth. Yeah, so um, they were, there was a radio station that I listened to, a talk station, and there's a guy named Joe Souchere uh, that was a radio host up there, and he had a, song, a, a show called Garage Logic. And he okay. was talking about these planes because they had a parachute that came out of the plane. They do. They do. In fact, you remember when riding in it that that was that handle that was up on the ceiling. And, um, you know, that is that's sort of like the, the oh, my God, pull. <laughs> Don't pull it unless you're saying, oh, my God. So <laughs> that leads me to another thing. So you and I had flown. Um, we went to Auburn and had some breakfast. Right. And then you took me and we flew over Lake Tahoe. Correct. And when we were going over uh, the top of the mountains, uh, we got caught in a little, I don't know what you call it, a wind updraft or whatever. And uh, the earphones were really good, and I could really only hear you. And I heard you go, whoo! <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, like, well, that must not happen all the time if the pilot says, whoo! <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's better than oops. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that that was a, that was a great trip. We had a great breakfast, and I really appreciated that time uh, with you taking me up there. Oh, it was it, that was a lot of fun, and I look forward to doing it again. So, um, no, it is it is it has been one of the things that 
I have several passions and, and flying is one of them. And um, it's no matter how hard I try, I can't seem to kick it out of my system. Well, it's it's interesting because Carissa always asks me when the mu- music thing is going to go away and when I'll be when I, I'll stop playing in bands. I'm like, sorry, babe, that's just uh, it, it's kind of uh, hardwired. Well, and, you know, I, I think it's part of being able to be good at other things, but it's also part about being able to keep your sanity. Yeah, um, you have to have diversity and you're very passionate about your music. You know, I'm very passionate about sailboat sailing and flying and woodworking. These are all things that I do to offset. I have no desire to retire because I really enjoy what I'm doing. Right. And so my work life is very fulfilling. And I like that because I can use I can use my other passions to to sort of be a, um, you know, a diversity to just work. I know a lot of people who are the A personality, which I believe I am, but I just am in multiple subjects. And but that work only scenario for me is is not diverse enough. I just don't get an it doesn't work all the sides of my brain. Yeah, I agree. So there's a a friend of mine up in uh, uh, Tahoe that he was one of the founders of Home Depot. And, okay. uh, you know, you have all the money in the world. And he's told me numerous times, he goes, don't retire. I've done it three times. It's horrible. <laughs> well, I had an opportunity between the job I have now and the one I previously had where it was about three years ago. And I had an opportunity and I was still getting full salary, but I had all this free time. And I was like, well, let's try this. Do I like retirement? And about 90 days later, I was like, hell no, I want to go back to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, my work is not done here. I need to I need to keep my brain busy. I, I'm, I'm right there with you. Well, and, and, you know, you've been around the technology world and um, it changes by the minute. You know, I mean, it, it is it used to be they'd say, well, you know, 18 months and the next generation comes out. You're lucky to get 18 hours for the next generation to come out. So it's it's a it's a challenge that is a fun challenge to be able to stay on top of that. And, um, you know, that's part of the reason I took the job with the police credit union is that they wanted to make a transact a transition. They were almost a billion dollars in assets. And that's sort of a milestone in the financial services industry. OK, um, but they were acting like a $200 million company. So they were sort of a mom and pop shop. And when I interviewed for the job, the CEO said, we don't want to be that anymore. We want to be something different. And through my career, I've had experience with coming into those kind of companies and growing growing them from a technology side. And so it was really intriguing to me. And that's why I took that job was because he wanted to be something he wasn't. Well, you got to go through those... Uh growing pains if you will and you don't know what you don't know you know Mm -hmm. until all of a sudden you get there and it slaps you right in the face and you're like "Uh oh i I better change something well and i think that part of the thing that for me that i that i've liked in being in those kind of turnaround environments for different companies was that my brain really works peculiar um i see things like 
three steps forward, two steps to the side, and another step forward after that. I, my brain just goes those next few steps, whether they're real or not. In my head, they are. <laughs> and so, so it's it's not it's not difficult for me to look at something and see what needs to be done, done now, but also try to figure out if I do something now, how is that going to affect what I know needs to be done down the road? And, um, and that keeps me, you know, I wake up many times at three o'clock in the morning with a new idea, but, but that kind of stuff keeps me going. So was that something that was, um, in you from the beginning or is that, does that come with experience for some of the things you've done or is it a mix of both? I, it, I would probably have to say to be realistic, it's a mix of both, but I grew up in an environment. My father was an IBMer. And so I've been around technology since I was a kid. And um, I was never, I was never exposed to it in a manner that made me nervous of it or afraid of it. Mm -hmm. And so I was always taught, if you can think it, you can do it. And um, now I may not be able to do the programming, but if I, but I can do the designing and I've designed applications and I've just, you know, done things like that, where if I can think of it, somebody can do it. I know that. So, and I've just, I've, I've been accused many times by many bosses of not only being an outside the box thinker, but I had one boss tell me, he said, I, he didn't even know if I knew where the box was. <laughs> so what, what did your dad do at IBM? Was he a programmer or what did he do? Well, no, he was actually a database specialist. Mm. So when SQL first came to the scene with IBM, he, he was the Bay Area senior database administrator. And, um, you know, that's about as geeky as it gets. Um, and, um, but he, you know, but he, it's funny, he was also, he was a philosophy major in school. So he looked at things considerably different. Um, and most of my family, you know, to the chagrin of most of my family. <laughs> but, um, you know, so I, I grew up thinking about things differently um, just because um, I don't like to lose and um, I've never liked to lose. And so I, if there's something I want or want to do or want to be, I will find a way and I will find Well, you know, the story of that plane that we went and did the trip to Auburn and stuff like that. When I was taking my flying lessons, the Cirrus was the plane I wanted to fly. It was brand new, glass cockpit, full, you know, electronics, all the things like that. But it was incredibly expensive. But I said, no, that's the plane I want to fly. So I had to figure out how to do it. So I opened up a flight school in Livermore so that I could put the airplane in the flight school and generate revenue to pay for it. So that I could fly that airplane. <laughs> Where there's a will, there's a way, baby. Precisely. And that's just, you know, and that seems to be, and because I was able to get the tax advantages of the business was enough that for two years, I didn't have to have any withholding out of my salary. And then that paid, then I could subsidize the business and pay for the airplane. So, you know, I just have never taken the easy way around. <laughs> So how did how did your 
Um, if you know, how, how did your dad go from philosophy into technology? He was he was in he was in uh, Air Force Intelligence during the Korean War. Okay. Um, and you know, I mean, like I said, he was kind of a geek, and he he the Air Force sent him to Yale University for to learn Chinese. So he had, I think, I don't know, you need like two hundred and fifty units to get a degree from a university. He had like 500 units in Chinese. And so, and then what he would do is he would, he was stationed in Japan and he would listen to the um, Chinese fighter pilots. And they didn't think any round eyes would know how to understand them. So they didn't code anything. They just talked in clear radio communications. He would listen to them translate that and tell our guys what they were doing wow so, but so that's so one off from a normal kind of thing and i think he just had that mentality so when he came back from the service and he got out of school um he got a job with the government managing their um uh, data center in lodi california so he wanted out of the midwest and to come back to California. So, so it just, and that he just got a job managing the, the data center there and then left that job and went to work for IBM. So when, when did you come to California? 1963. And how old were you? Eight, no five. Okay. So you went to your whole schooling was all in California. Yeah. I started, I started kindergarten in Stockton. Well, no wonder you're a Packer fan. <laughs> <laughs> they moved you out of there. I have, I have a dozen family members living in Minnesota right now. Yeah. Well, they're, uh, it, it, you're better off that it's it. You, you got Super Bowl championships, all kinds of fun stuff going on. And we're just the Vikings. Yeah. Well, your, your, your time will come. <laughs> well, who knows? But <laughs> <laughs> well, just, just a law averages. <laughs> Well, so when you were around your dad, I mean, is that when you knew that you were interested in technology? No, um, is I, it was one of those things that I just kept coming back to because it was natural for me and I was relatively good at it. Mm -hmm. And so what happened is, is, you know, so at, before IBM even built their first PC, my dad and I built a PC and there was a company in Berkeley that was called Thinker Toys and they would sell the circuit boards that let you do different kinds of things. So we built a PC with, um, you know, some software that was available at the time, but this was pre-DAWs, pre-anything. In fact, in order to start the computer, there was a keypad. You had to enter in the hex code for the location to start the computer. And then that's what would boot it up. Wow. So, yeah, it was. So we did that. And then as the world progressed, I, I, you know, I, I sold some PCs. I consulted with people on this and I kept going. I worked for a company and sold business forms um, for five years um, after college. And, and so I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So, I mean, I actually started a travel agency the senior year in college. 
And that stayed in my family for over 20 years until my mom passed away. Um, I just wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to be. And so I've owned a number of companies. Some have been successful. Some haven't. And um, But it, every time I turned around and I needed to make a living or I needed to do something, I seemed to migrate back to the technology. And then I learned through that process that I wanted, you could never keep up with the current technology. So mm -hmm. somebody who was an engineer or somebody who was a technician, you kind of had to make a decision. Did you want to be a 3Com guy? Did you want to be a, you know, what kind of programmer? And I didn't want to make that decision. I wanted to hedge my bets. So I learned how to manage people. So I figured I could always manage whomever knew the latest and greatest technology. And then I also found that it was, it was, there was somewhat of an art to build an IT department and to, to set a company up to be successful in IT. And this was long before IT became such an integral part. Um, you know, nowadays, IT is a very prevalent part of what a company has to have to be successful. Right. This, this pandemic has shown that significantly. But back in the day, they, you know, it was MIS departments and, you know, IT was sort of the, you know, you open the secret door and you slide in your request and you wait for them to answer. I didn't think it should be that way. And so early on, I started thinking of this as being a, you know, a department that is supposed to be a support mechanism for the business. And so that is how I just continued to progress. And now, who knew? That's how everybody starts to think of it. <laughs> well, it, it's definitely an art form, you know, for um, you and I have talked multiple times while I've been, you know, building this company, uh, mostly at the beginning. And, uh, you know, I've got multiple people like yourself that I turn to, to uh, ask questions to, because a lot of the things that we're doing, I've never been through before. And you mm -hmm. kind of have to turn to some people that have had some of that experience. My question to you is, who are some of the folks that you look to as mentors that have really kind of um, kind of positioned you in the right way when you have a question? Are there any mentors out there that have uh, really kind of showed you the way? Uh, yeah, you know, I'm so old now that most of them have died. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you know what I it's interesting where I find where I find the most help isn't in necessarily me reaching out asking it is when people like you come to me and ask me a question that to me helps me formulate a, an answer that I may or may not have thought of in the past and so I get a, I get a lot of that part of the reason I like mentoring young technology executives is because the questions that they bring are thought processes that are different than the way I look at things. And they help me formulate a response to talk to somebody who doesn't have the experience I do and give it to them in the manner they may be able to understand. And so I, I get a lot of, I, I was part of the CIO executive council for a number of years. And one of the things I did was I was part of a group that was grooming 
CIOs, the upcoming CIOs. And to me, listening to them continually helps me grow the way I do things because just as sports coaches are having more and more challenges dealing with the current crop of athletes because they're not the same as when you played or when I played, you know, was it's a different mentality. They have to adapt and learn. And that's what I found for myself is, is being cognizant of that point of view and then trying to and trying to adjust my thought process to deal with that. So for instance, you've known me a very long time. I am not a very politically correct guy. <laughs> Thank God. But, yes, but I have but I also understand that I can't just be the ogre. I have to take into consideration some of this stuff. Millennials are a unique group, you know, to deal with. But instead of fighting it and just being the old crotchety son of a bitch and say, you know, damn millennials, you know, it, I need to deal with them. I need to be able to figure out how to communicate with them. So those kinds of things help me be better at what I do. Well, that's an interesting observation. I'm glad that you said that because nobody has answered it that way before. And I think back to um, my 12-step program that I go through to stay sober every day, which is a huge part of my life. I have learned more from working with people who are coming up through the system who are trying to get sober mm-hmm. with them asking me questions because, like you said, it comes from a whole different mindset than the mindset I'm in that day. And while I'm trying to help that person, it helps me out so much more than they could ever realize, you know, to keep me on my path. So it's, it's really interesting you brought that up because it makes a lot of sense. Oh, it, and, and, you know, I, I understand that. And it's, it's funny because sometimes those questions help me more than I help them. Yeah. Um, sometimes, sometimes I look at that and I, and it, it will just give me a whole different light to solve a problem or to deal with a personal issue or something like that. And I, I am, I'm thrilled to be able to have that outlet from either my staff or, my my uh, my peers, you know, at work, and so I look at that as I'm really lucky to be able to have those kinds of uh, that kind of feedback for to help me be better. So you've held a bunch of different C level executive uh, positions over the years. Uh, I one of the questions that when I was getting ready for this was uh, um, I was kind of apprehensive to ask it, but I said, "What the hell? Have you ever went into?" Um, a no-win situation where you got into an organization and it was just you were set up to fail from the beginning. Um, anything like that where it's just like you got in there for a while and just said, "Oh God." Um, luckily, not from the beginning. I've had a couple of times where it's turned that way. Um, where I got in there and I had the right kind of boss and the right kind of organization. And then, you know, topsy-turvy kind of thing, and it changed. And then there I got to the point where there was just nothing I could do that was going to make a difference. Um, and so I, I have been very lucky in that what I've chosen to do is, um, is worked out pretty well. But I've had, because being in the financial services industry, 
I've had companies sold out from underneath me a couple, three times. You know, um, I had one where I thought it was going to be the job to end jobs. And, um, you know, I was back in the Midwest at a vendor and my my boss called me up and said, oh, by the way, the board just agreed to sell the company. I had just closed on a brand new house in Southern California. Oh. It had been, had been being built for, you know, five months. And it, we, I had just closed in on Labor Day weekend in September. And I got the phone call about mid-October saying that they just sold the company. So knowing that my role was going to disappear, I had to turn around and put it on the market, you know. So I, I got the chance to stay in it for like six weeks. <laughs> so then uh, this podcast is really to help other people out. So when you deal with something like that, how do you face that and how do you move forward? Well, you know, life has got ups and downs. And, you, you know, there's good times and bad times. And I try not to, I, tr I try not, you know, sort of a this too will pass kind of mentality. I, I try not to get too high on the highs or too low on the lows. Um, a lot of people have, you know, those kinds of situations have a monetary impact on them. And I guess I'm just too stupid to care that much about money. I know I can always find a way to make money. So I don't let those kinds of things get to me. And, and I've been out of money plenty of times. Sure. But, but, but I, I try not to get too high, too low. And um, when it's all said and done, I know I'll be able to, I just, unfortunately or fortunately, I just have so much self-confidence that I know that if I put my mind to it and I go to work at it, I'll be able to make it all work. Um, you know, and luckily I've been able to so far, you know, but, um, but that is, that's just my mindset. I just, I'm not a, I told you, I don't, I hate to lose. And so even if I'm in a situation where it looks like I'm losing, you know, I, I won't accept that and I'll figure out some way to, to win. I think back to, I was in my early teens and, uh, this little town in Illinois called Mount Carroll, where I was, grew up, sure. my dad um, got fired from his salary job at uh, a place called uh, Woods, which they, they, they made implements, like farm implements, uh, mowing okay. implements for the back of tractors. <clears throat> and uh, he came home and he just gave up all hope. And, uh, it was one of those situations that now I look back on and I've learned so much about that situation that he went through because he went into a dark depression and it was sad to watch this big, powerful man just lose it. And, uh, you know, he just couldn't dig himself out of that depression. And, uh, I, I, I try to learn from that every day. And I, I, I appreciate the fact that, cause that as a friend of yours, I've seen you go through ups and downs as far as like career stuff. Absolutely. And you have always kept a great attitude and then always come out on the top end of it because of your positive attitude. And uh, I, I really, I, I love the fact that you brought that up because to me, that is the secret sauce. 
is I know I'm going to get through this. This too shall pass. Now let's go out and seize the day. Well, and, and thanks. I appreciate you saying that. And that is, that is sort of just my mindset. So to give, we talked about my father earlier and, you know, he retired from IBM early, like 55 or something like that. And he kept saying, well, you know, eventually I'm, I'd like to do this. Eventually I'd like to do this and eventually I'd like to do that. He actually worked for me at one of my companies for about seven years, um, which was a different dynamic in itself. Um, but then he got cancer and died at 64 mm. and eventually never showed up. And eight weeks after he passed away, I took my first flying list because I said, eventually he's not going to take this away from me. And so I've tried to, for the last 25 years, especially since both my parents passed, I've tried to say, uh, I'm not going to let eventually ruin my life. So if, and you know me, I do a lot of things. <laughs> well, we're going we're gonna to talk about one of the other things you do right now. So my first ever weekend that I spent in the San Francisco Bay Area, my now wife, Carissa, says, um, we're going sailing with some friends of mine out on the San Francisco Bay. I said, well, that sounds great. And her friend, Terry, says, dress warm because it's going to be cold out there. And a Midwest guy coming out to California, I didn't know about San Francisco and the fog and all that kind of stuff. So I just followed the lead. And we get out there. We're on this amazing wooden sailboat. How long was that thing? 60 feet. 60 foot sailboat. And Cy was his name, right? Yep, Cy Kleiman. Cy Kleiman. This beautiful couple, Cy and his wife. What was her name? Phyllis. Phyllis. So Cy and Phyllis, uh, Blake is working on this beautiful wooden sailboat. We go out there, and it's one of the nicest 80-degree days ever. And we all had, like, winter jackets on and stuff. I, I, have, I have never seen it that warm out there again. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're out there sailing around, and I'm sitting there thinking, well, this is just what my uh, girlfriend does every weekend is go sailing on this million-dollar boat <laughs> <laughs> under the Bay Bridge. Um, but what an amazing thing. How, how did you get into sailing? Well, I actually, it was a birthday present for me. Um, it was a birthday present when I was like 10 years old, and my parents got me a birthday present of sailing lessons on Lake Merritt in Oakland, downtown Oakland. And um, to show you the difference in the way things are nowadays, because you're raising a brand new son, the, the way they were then when I was 10 years old, so that was what, like 1965, um, my mom drove me down to the Greyhound bus station, put me on a Greyhound bus, had me get go into downtown Oakland and get off and walk over to Lake Merritt. <laughs> I'll probably do that with Johnny when he's 10. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. And, and Carissa will put a hatchet in you. Right, right, right. <laughs> so I, I started sailing when I was about 10. Sailing is one of those things you either get it, you get the bug, or you don't. And it was nice to do, and people almost always enjoy it. But it was just one of those things that sort of just went into my soul. And so now I've been sailing for 55 years. 
And so it's something that, um, you know, just show me a picture of a sailboat and I'm, I'm, you know, it'll bring a smile to my face. So, um, yeah, I, and then it was something I did, you know, two of my daughters, um, are really accomplished sailors. And so, um, you know, so it was something we could do. They were still willing to do it with dad, even when, you know, they got older. So, so how did you get hooked up with, uh, uh, Cy? It was interesting. So I went to college with a guy who had been crewing with him for a while. Give you a story. When Cy was 59 years old, um, doctor told him, cause he was one of these, a personalities. He owned a big Ford dealership in, uh, in, um, San Jose. And doctor said, Cy, you're going to have to find a hobby. He said, you know, you're, you, you can't just be work, 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 no play. You have to find a hobby. And Cy, you know, said, well, I went sailing once. It was kind of fun. So the kind of Cy guy, kind of guy Cy was. So here's a guy who said, yeah, sailing might be fun, but he said, I'm too old to start from the bottom. So he, found a broker, went out, and he bought this outstanding, gorgeous 60-foot yacht down in San Diego that was being sailed by America's Cup sailors um, down in San Diego. So um, that was his introduction to sailing. Oh, it's, nice and, to, it's nice to start off s- small. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> well, and then, you know, they always told him that you're supposed to have a boat that is at least as long as how many years old you are. So he was 59, the boat was 60, so he did good there. Of course, the last time I went sailing with him before he passed, he was 96 years old. Wow. And I kept asking where the 96-foot boat was. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I, I, I went to college with a guy who was a crew of his when the boat first came up to the bay. And, um, and then he just asked if I wanted to participate. And I became, I mean, Cy became like a surrogate dad to me. And, um, and it just was one of, I, I sailed on his boat for over 25 years. And um, it, was, it was just the joy of my life to be, not only to sail with him, but you met him and his wife. They were, they were just outstanding people. Yeah, nicest people ever. I, it, was, it was great to be out there on this boat and, what started off as a cool morning, then we said turned into an 80 degree day and we're all sitting out there in t-shirts and <laughs> just sweat dripping. And then we yeah. ended up go, we ended up going to the yacht club afterwards. St. Francis yacht club. Oh man. I'm sitting there. I'm like, what did I just walk into here? I'm, I'm living the way the other people live right now. That's, it. That's how the other half live. <laughs> <laughs> so what, Going back into the business mindset now, um, what do you feel both from yourself and from other people you've worked for, uh, uh, other senior executives that you've reported to, what do you think makes a great leader? So I guess I'm supposed to say humility. No, I just... <laughs> <laughs> That's bullshit. <laughs> no, you know, what, what has always impressed me with leaders that I've come across is obviously their ability to assess situations. But then 
for me, it is their ability to understand they may not have all the answers. And it's then putting their teams in a position to find the answers and then act on them. And so, you know, I, I try not to ever post blame to any mistake because I think you learn more from mistakes than you do from successes. And so I encourage my team to make decisions. I'd rather have them make 10 decisions and make three mistakes than not to make any decisions at all. Now, if they make the same mistake over and over again, that's a different conversation. But, you know, I, I want them to grow. And I think, that, I think that the trait that I liked in leaders was to give me the opportunity to grow, but give me the opportunity to fail. If you're constantly afraid of failing because you think you're going to get fired or something like that, you do not get anywhere near the, the innovative ideas from people because they're too afraid to say anything. So I found I am work best when I've had mentors or bosses that gave me the opportunity to make decisions and to fail without the consequences that my career was over if I failed. That's a great answer because uh, I've actually got a couple of things going on in my company right now where I just need to call them up and say, you make the decision. Yeah. You know, so, you know, and I think to me, that's, that's a, that's a good leader. Uh, A leader is, I, you know, front managing frontline managers is sort of the most fun because they go from being a doer to learning how to be a manager. And the, the first thing out of their mouth is when they run into any kind of, trouble is a oh, crap. I'll just do it myself. We'll get it done faster. That's not the answer, right? The answer is try to help your people do the things you need to do. If you can get two people to do 50% of what you can do, the next thing they do after that is a bonus. So, you know, and then that's a hard for a frontline manager to be, to put themselves sort of at risk for the performance of somebody else, you know, that they're, they're going to be judged based on what other people do. So now at, uh, at the police credit union, I'm sure like every other financial client that we work with, you guys are going through digital transformation. (laughs) What, 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 what kind of, what kind of stuff are you doing? Well, um, because, you know, I'm, I'm a glutton for punishment. So the core, the core software at a financial institution is what does all the transactions. So we're replacing that core system. They've been on this core system for 33 years. Wow. But the reason we're replacing it is because we cannot do the things that we want to do because the system's too old. So that is um, most organizations don't go through that, but once in a career. And then on top of that, the online banking software is the next most important software to a financial institution. We're replacing that one, too, both at the same time. And so and so I've named the project Big Bang. And um, so we're doing both of those Fourth of July weekend coming up next year. Um, But the whole purpose of it is to put us in a position to be successful. And one of the things that I have to give kudos to my boss is that when I 
interviewed three years ago, he said, these are the things we want to do. I don't know how to do them, but I want you to do them. And so I, I thoroughly appreciated that. I don't like to be told you do A, then you do B, then you do C, then you do D. I'm, you know, if, if that's what you want, I'm not the guy to do that because I, that's just not how I work successfully. You know, you can, you can hire a monkey to do those kinds of things, you know? And so what I, what I liked about him, he says, here's where we are. I want to get to Z. You fill in the blanks. <laughs> and so at that same point in time, they went from being a local Bay Area credit union to a statewide charter where they now can have members throughout the state of California. And he says, oh, by the way, of changing all these systems, I need you to figure a way that we can provide our services to everybody in California without having to build a branch on every corner. So, and, you know, foolish enough, I said, oh, man, that sounds like fun. I know that you, it's been a while ago now, you were telling me about um, some of the innovative things that you were looking at doing as far as um, setting up some of these places where people could go. Mm-hmm. Um, that probably works out even better with the current environment than it did when you were coming up with it back then. I'm, I'm sure it makes total sense now. Oh, yeah. You would think I was brilliant. Because <laughs> all of a sudden, all the stuff I'd been spouting has come to fruition. So it's interesting in that three years ago, before COVID, before any of this, as a matter of fact, the credit union was sort of anti-work from home. But I had two hours each direction to commute from Danville into into the city, Mm -hmm. and it it was taking its toll. So I was building infrastructure to be able to set up to be able to work from home very early on. And then in the middle of March, when this whole COVID thing happened, um, the executive team got together and and the CEO was panicked of how are we going to deal with this? We're locking down. We can't do, you know. I said, relax. I said, I got this covered. The day we went remote, out of the 120 people in the company, 100 of them were remote. And the only reason the other 20 weren't is because we had six branches that they were, they had to be in the branch. So, um, so yeah, so all of a sudden it made it look like I knew what I was doing. And, <laughs> and so then we were remote and we were doing this. It's interesting, in and I got again. I have to give Eddie Young is the CEO, and he is, he is, he's a, a bean counter by trade. He's a, he's a, you know, he was a CFO. He's, um, you know, a CPA. You wouldn't think that mindset normally isn't the out of the box kind of thinker, um, and but he has been so receptive to doing things that we think will make the company better. So then being able to have, I got him to spend an incredible amount of money on these interactive teller machines, which are like, they're a video teller ATM. And so we're now deploying those. We're, we're looking at being able to, um, to have extremely innovative um, online banking with video interaction and, and things like that so that any one of our members would be able to do business wherever they are. 
And, you know, and I've reached out to your team to help provide me talent to be able to do some of these things. And, um, but it, it is, it's a situation where um, if I'm not a dozen steps ahead, the last thing I want to do is have to tell Eddie, you know, he comes to me with an idea. The last thing I want to do is said, oh, no, we're not ready for that. So I have to, and I have to anticipate. So it's my job to make sure that, that he can't think of something that I already haven't prepared for. Yeah. Well, that's the, the um, what, do you, what do you call them? Interactive teller mm-hmm. machines. That, that, that's, that's what I was talking about before. I remember when you were telling me about those, I'm like, that's a great idea. But if you were to tell me about it today, I'm like, that's an amazing idea. You know? Well, it, yeah. It just sort of fell into place that it really, it, you know, um, it really turned out to be like I had a crystal ball. Yeah. You know, so it's, um, and that's what I like about what I do. That's exactly the reasons I have no desire to stop doing what I do. Right. Is because there's always something like this on the horizon. Well, we have uh, coming up tomorrow, uh, we've got for our company, uh, IT Avalon, um, we've got our uh, holiday virtual happy hour party, you know, like everybody's doing this year. Um, And uh, it's going to be great. We're going to have a good time, but uh, it's just not being together. You know, it's like, it's such a, it's such a weird thing. Like my mom hasn't hugged or touched her only grandson or only grandchild in a year. Right. You know, Zoom is great. Um, FaceTime is great, but it's like when you miss out on that interaction between two human beings, it's so hard on everybody. Um, what I, my, my question leading up to this is how has this new normal of, uh, COVID and social distancing, how has it impacted and affected your teams and productivity? It's interesting. It is probably the opposite of what you would expect. Um, we have seen a pretty substantial increase in productivity. And I think I tried to figure it out. I was having a conversation and we were trying to, to put a handle on why that is. Um, but I think it's, it's one main piece is that the life work balance is easier to maintain because you're sitting at home. So if you need to stop and feed the kids, or if you need to set them up on their Zoom class for school, or if you need to do something, you can without the guilt of not being in the office or leaving early or something like that. We're finding our people probably are working longer hours, but they're doing it at their own discretion. And so we're getting more work done, but I don't think the stress is there because they have to put a wall between family and work. Yeah. Um, I personally miss being in the office. I don't miss the commute, but I miss being, I like the interaction and I like having people come into my office, sit down and just have a conversation. Zoom is fine, things like that, but I miss, I mean, you know, Chris's birthday party was the highlight of the year so far it was for us too it was uh it was great to just be around other people 
Right. And to not worry just for a night about all of this crap. You know, but the, the, the interesting part about the question and your answer is I've talked to numerous different C-level executives, asked the same question. I get the same answer from everybody. And it's great because it's going it, it, in one fail swoop in 2020, um, the way that we work moving forward is completely changed. Yes, and I'm, I'm hoping that it becomes a hybrid of what we're doing. Because so I had a conversation with my boss and I said, you know, we were talking right now. We're not planning to bring anybody back into the office. We have a brand new, gorgeous 75,000 square foot headquarters in San Bruno that we haven't populated. The people haven't been really in it for a year. (laughs) And but we were talking about he doesn't he's not going to ask people to come back at all in 21. And that does that's that's says two things. One is he's become very comfortable with what we're doing remotely, um, you know, and so that's good. And he's changed his mentality about work from home. Yeah. And But he's also leaving it up to his individual managers to manage their people and make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And so I'm hoping it'll be a hybrid of that. I told him, even when we come back, I'm not coming back full time because I can do the commute. You know, maybe I'll do week in a week and I'll stay I'll, I'll stay down in the Bay Area for a week, make sure I get everybody that I need to see and do that. And then I'll come back up to, to Red Bluff and do a week remote. Um, to me, that's that will keep my sanity. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll be able to work, you know, till 106. <laughs> that's living. <laughs> you know, so. What was the what was the last book um, that you read that you'd like to turn us on to? Doesn't have to be the last book. What, what was the last great book well, that you I, read? I put it in the questionnaire. One of the books that that I thought was outstanding, and it's we think we know the history, but it was called the Wright Brothers, and it was but it was put together in a unique. It's so it's not historical fiction. It's not a biography. It is. The author put together the story of the Wright brothers and and the beginning of aviation through letters that the Wright brothers wrote to their um, family, to the, his you know his father and his sister, and back and forth to each other, and through newspaper articles and through and those kinds of things. It just gave such a awe-inspiring picture of what actually happened. I mean, you know, we're all desensitized to, you know, all the things with computers and all the things like that. But you turn around, they went from barely driving automobiles. I mean, literally barely driving automobiles. I mean, the Wright brothers started as a bicycle company. Right. And, and went from the, in a matter of two decades, you know, they were into, you know, everybody was flying. Um, so it was just, it was fascinating. And I, it, it was, I've actually, I have it on Audible because when I was commuting, I would listen. And I've actually listened to it multiple times. Um, it's just, it, it is one of those ones that you think about um, the fortitude it took to stick with it and to go through the failures and the ups and downs and, and just be 
so single-minded about something that it's just awe-inspiring. I just, I, I, you don't see that very often. Well, I, I actually just downloaded an Audible as well. As soon as I saw it, um, I thought that would be interesting. And I thought it was very fitting that uh, you, you were reading about the Wright brothers. Well, and, you know, it's interesting because Terry actually bought it for me for a birthday present or something like that, thinking I would enjoy it. I, we listened it. She listened at the same time. And we were both just kind of dumbstruck about how, um, you know, how intriguing the entire book was. And like I said, it's not it's not a biography or something. It's it's telling a story of how all this stuff came together. It was just, and since I do have a passion for aviation, it was, it was very interesting. I'm going to take a listen to it for sure, because most, most of what I do is on audible. Um, so I have about a thousand books in my library. Yeah. What, uh, what year did they actually take flight? The Wright brothers? Oh, three. Oh, three. So 117 years later, I mean, only 117 years ago. Yes. I mean, absolutely amazing. And then you've got a picture out of your airplane flying over Montana right there behind you. Exactly. You know, it's just, it, yeah. it's at, when you think about things and how far we as a human race have come in 117 years, I mean, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And like you talk about uh, prior to this in the podcast, that the, how quickly technology is uh, moving forward. It, it's, it's absolutely awe-inspiring what uh, humans can do when you all work together. Precisely. And I think that, you know, it, it's one of those things, it's just to me, it, it makes me excited to be living right now. Um, because if, if my kids ask me about something, I, I t there's nothing that we can't do. If you can think about it, we'll find a way to get it done. Right. And, um, you know, and now I've got my first grandbaby coming in January and I can't wait, you know, to see what she's going to experience in her lifetime. That's great. So we end every one of these podcasts the same way with the same questions. So the true ambition podcast was put together. Um, uh, I, I, been sober six and a half years, and one of the quotes that really kind of changed my life um, out of one of the books in uh, my 12-step program says that true ambition is not what we thought it was. True ambition is the profound desire to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of God. Um, when I read that, it completely changed um, the way that I look at the world and my perspective on things. I've always been ambitious. I think that before I kind of straightened out my life. I was ambitious for the wrong things. Being where you've been, doing what you've done, looking forward, what is your true ambition, both in your personal life and in your professional life going forward? Uh, interesting that you that you mentioned, you know, um, thinking you were ambitious in the wrong way. I've had that epiphany myself. I, you know, I used to be, I wanted to be, you know, I thought my ambition was to be, you know, the, the entrepreneur and, you know, the dot-com mega mogul and that kind of thing. And, and 
I realized that that has nothing to do with my ambition. Um, I try to be as, from a personal life, I try to be as valuable to my friends and family as I can. And I consciously look at different scenarios in that manner of how is this affecting my friends and family? You know, is am I being the best Blake I can be? In my professional life, it has no longer become success in personal gain or wealth or anything like that. It has been, you know, do I have an influence on the company I work for? Do I have an do I have an effect on the people who work for me or that I work with? If I can answer yes to any of those questions, I feel really accomplished. And so, you know, I that is that has been different. When I was 20, it had been an entirely different conversation. But I think I am more committed to the things I just talked about now than I ever was before. Awesome. Well, that's a a great answer and it's been a great podcast and uh You've uh, you you you've been a blessing in my life, and uh, I uh, I hope to see you guys again soon in 2021. 2020 is out of here, absolutely. So uh, we'll be look we'll be looking forward to uh, seeing you and Terry soon, and uh, I wish you guys the best. Thanks so much for this. All right, talk to you later. Bye bye. Bye bye. The True Ambition Podcast is brought to you by It Avalon. For more information and links to other episodes, please visit www.trueambition.org. Now, go find your true ambition.